Hey ho, Tudor minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 28 of our podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are so pleased to have listeners from all over the world. I know our brilliant listeners are everywhere. And we hope wherever you are, you're having a historically tutorific day. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're new here, it's best to start at episode one, or you just really won't know what's happening. This is a story project, and it goes in order. We've had such an amazing time researching it and working on it, and we cannot wait to share this new episode with you. In our last episode, we saw Charles Paget come through the window of Bedford House. Now we're going to the Arundel Inn to see how Philomena counsels Constance and see how they decide what will happen in her future. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 28, The Arundel Inn, in which Constance seeks solace and Philomena recalls a Wyatt. Philomena rushed downstairs when Cuthbert relayed that a gentlewoman waited below. She hoped, embellished with a few curses, that it was not that shrew Lady St. Lowe searching out her profligate son, or worse, the penny-pinching Lady Clifford, back to argue her husband's bill. Constance, an unexpected pleasure. Why was she wrapped so unevenly in snow-specked furs? Philomena gestured for Marianne to help Constance unswaddle. Constance's servant Wynne was encumbered with what looked to be a tennis racket. Constance was out of sorts, taking the racket and swinging it as if the inn were full of flies. Philomena put up her hands to protect herself. Hold, Constance! I fear it is my head you will knock. I will order some sweets, my friend. I consider sweets as good for the body as exercise. Philomena took the racket. Come upstairs, where we may converse freely. The second she had locked the door, Philomena turned to her friend, concerned by the way Constance slumped, picked, and stared. Are you well, Constance? What has happened? Something so disturbing. Charles, I thought him a perfect match, but... Constance put her head on the table. Philomena reached out and grabbed Constance's shoulder. What has he done? Philomena rose. I will get the tower. We will not let Charles go unpunished. Constance almost laughed. It is the exact opposite of your fear. It is not a thing that could ever come into your mind. Charles proposes that we take orders together in Spain, that we not marry and have children, but become a monk and a nun. What did you say? I have never heard such a thing, Philomena exclaimed. Constance shook her head. My aunt told me that Charles once thought to leave England and become a monk, but his father and his brother forbade it, insisting he marry. I hazard he wishes to do his brother's will, and yet follow his own. But, Philomena, I, I do not want to be a nun. It should be my greatest wish to live so pure a life, but I do not want it. And neither does Charles, I am sure. This is some passing fancy. Constance flushed. I thought he wanted to be with me. And then his words pushed me away. I am sure he longs for you. You are so lovely. Constance felt the sting in her eyes. Not as lovely as the illustrious brotherhood of the true cross. What? asked Philomena. I do not know, but Charles said they would help carry out his plan. Constance sniffed. Oh, I am wretched. Philomena put her arm around the other's shoulder. Constance, your charms are strong, dearest. This was only Charles's religious passion, nothing to do with you. 
The next time you see him, he will take you in his arms, and all this will be forgotten. Do you think so? His eyes were wild, like a cow before the slaughter. I thought my sense had abandoned me, and, and then I thought his sense had abandoned him, and then Elan Snakenborg came in, and Anapana Zappa! He was transformed into charming Charles again. Sounds so unsettling, but this freak shall pass. Few men truly wish to be celibate. A knock at the door. Blackjack appeared, and before he had said a word, Constance popped up. I must take my leave. Stay a bit longer, Constance, encouraged Philomena. Yet she understood her friend might not want Blackjack to see her in such a state. No, no, I must be off. Courage, Philomena cheered as Constance took her leave. Philomena turned to Blackjack. Why must you fluster her? It is not my fault Mistress Stoner is always in a plight before I have even said good day. In your honour, I nodded to her at the court service yesterday. So friendly. You have outdone yourself, sir. Your little willow had no time for me. Young Herbert Pembroke was stuck to her side until the shit flew in the privy garden at Whitehall. That is no place for a ruckus amongst the Queen's best flowers. And yet it was with you at the centre? Indeed, no. It was the sundial trick, and an ass of a poor sport cursed the ladies. What ill manners. The maids of honour mean nothing by these jokes. Indeed. And Herbert, no doubt to impress your little willow, punched the offender. Wyatt will never get back into anyone's good grace the way he is behaving. Wyatt? Philomena echoed. Sir George Wyatt, the soldier Thomas Wyatt the younger's son. George is such a turd. He will be his own undoing. George Wyatt? Philomena remembered Sir Henry mentioned this lad when she was at his home. How could she not have thought of him before? She and Constance must search him out. And where is this ill-natured George Wyatt lodging? I suppose at Barnard's Inn. He is a student there, and I pity his fellows. Be sure he does not have enough money to take rooms here, my goddess. All the better. In some fit of rage, he would tear your linen and eat your curtains. Besides, he loathes me as I loathe him. If we were both to lodge here, you would need a well-armed guard to keep me from running him through. Give me a kiss, sweet beauty. I have to go to the market, sir, Philomena said, realizing she would have to seek another source for an introduction to George Wyatt. Then I will carry Venus's basket, Blackjack said, giving her his arm. Poor Constance starts this chapter in such a muddle, as the British would say. Yeah, and that's clear to Philomena because Constance shows up with a tennis racket, which is completely out of character, and she's acting so odd, like swinging it around. And almost and whacking Philomena in the face with it. And the racket wouldn't look like today's tennis racket. I mean, of course it was made of wood, and the head of the racket, it wouldn't be quite so in enormous and round as today's tennis rackets are. I've seen different images of these rackets, and some look more like squash rackets, and some almost look triangular. I don't know. Maybe there wasn't a regulation racket. You know, you you had one made in a shape you liked because they weren't sort of mass produced. I don't know. I'm just hazarding that as a possibility. In the 16th century, they were playing what is now called real tennis, the game of kings. (laughs) Yes. So the tennis court Philomena is having built on her property, it's not like a tennis court now. It would be indoors for one thing. It's not lawn tennis. Yes, and real tennis is just a different game from the modern version. Real tennis evolved over centuries because it was first played with the hand, that you hit the ball with your hand, then it was played with a glove, and then finally with a racket. 
And by the 16th century, it was played indoors in this kind of narrow court with a net in the middle. But the ball could be played, I guess I should say can be played because people still play real tennis, off the walls or off the sloping roof that goes all around the court. Right. On one side of the court, there is a wall. And on the other side, there is a kind of arcade with windows. And there are nets on the windows. And the ball can also be hit into the nets. And there are all these different lines on the floor, and they affect the scoring. It's it's really complicated. And I did read somewhere that the game originated from playing ball against the city walls. Mm. So that's why you have a wall on one side, you have these kind of arcades and windows on the other side, which would have been kind of the shops. And then you have this sort of sloping roof that was like the rooftops of the houses. So it, it did start as this kind of outdoor game that was played against the city walls, and then it sort of moved indoors and became kind of, there was like a certain type of court. Uh, it's, it's really interesting how these things come about. You know, I've watched people play real tennis on YouTube and then modern tennis to compare the two. Modern tennis is really about power. I mean, these players are so powerful, and it's about hitting the crap out of the tennis ball. But real tennis requires a lot more agility because the ball can be played from so many different places. It's it's really fast. It looks fun, but very hard. Yeah. I think I would never I think know what was happening. just the scoring is really hard. <laughs> Henry VIII loved the game, but of course women were not allowed to play. So Constance will not get to use that racket anytime soon. No. Although by the 18th century, there were apparently some great female players, and in particular, a French woman, Madame Brunel, who played two famous matches of real tennis with the man who was then the best English player, Mr. Tompkins. And Madame Brunel beat Mr. Tompkins once, and then everyone said, oh, well, that was a fluke. And then she beat him again in a rematch. Wow. Well, good for her. Yeah, I mean, it's like the battle of the sexes. You know, it first took place in 1760, over 200 years before Billie Jean King beat Bobby Riggs in 1973. But as far as we know, there were no women playing tennis at Hampton Court with Henry VIII. (laughs) Women were spectators only. The Constance and the women of her class, they wouldn't take exercise playing real tennis, but they would take exercise by riding. And riding side saddle, which to me seems much harder than riding in a men's saddle astride the horse. I agree. Imagine having both your legs twisted to one side while you're trying to keep your torso upright in a saddle that is not square to the horse's neck. It's like doing yoga on horseback, you know, (laughs) like just the twisting. And you must have felt like you were sliding off all the time. It's not like a steady seat. It's true. I mean, medieval side saddles were even worse. They were little cushioned seats with a footrest hanging down. And the lady sat in it as if she were in a chair with her entire body completely turned to the side. So she could not really hold the reins. And there was no way to stay on or control the horse at any speed other than a walk. So while the lady sat in the seat, she would be led either by a man walking beside her holding the horse's bridle or by a lead line that was tied to a male rider's horse. Mm. So that was not much exercise. No. I mean, that makes sense. It's more 
processional, you know? So it's uncomfortable and impractical. Apparently it was the indomitable Catherine de Medici, the 16th century queen of France, who revolutionized the side saddle so she could sit straight to the horse's neck and hold the reins herself. So she had it made so that her right leg went over the pommel of the saddle with a kind of brace to hold it in place. And then there was one real stirrup for her left leg. So she was kind of side lunging <laughs> onto the horse. It's still better than sitting completely to the, I mean, I'm just thinking about sitting completely to the side with both your feet hanging down. I mean, you just are going to slip off the yes. horse unless you hold yourself on it. But I'm sure when Catherine de' Medici created this saddle, it was a huge scandal that she wanted to ride on her own and, you know, actually control this horse herself. Oh, no doubt. And also, no doubt, people said it was the end of civilization <laughs> and she should be arrested. Yeah. And- <laughs> Who knows? And that was going to be the end of it all. But anyway, it's good to be Queen of France. So she did it anyway. And it caught on. And women were actually able to ride independently and to trot and canter without falling off. You, You steer a horse by the reins, but also from pressure from one leg or the other. It, it must have been hard to control a horse with just that left leg and with your other leg over on the other side. When a horse moves, I mean, you you bounce up and down. So if you're not like totally settled in that seat, it must be, I just can't imagine. And there was certainly no way women could gallop or jump fences in these side saddles. It took another 400 years until the 1830s for the side saddle to be revolutionized so women could do those things. Do you mean that scene in the movie Elizabeth where Kate Blanchett gallops across the fields with Joseph Fiennes or Sir Robert Dudley that that could not have happened? <laughs> Shocking! <laughs> no, no, no. And even though they have her supposedly riding a 16th century side saddle. Yeah, she is riding side saddle. She's riding side saddle. The scene was actually filmed with Kate Blanchett sitting safely with both legs around the horse. She was sitting astride. And so then a clever prop master, (laughs) and kudos to them. Yeah. It looks fabulous made a fake leg that was attached to make it look as if she was riding side saddle. But in fact, she actually had three legs. (laughs) And the speech scene where she's wearing full armor and sitting atop a pacing speed, I mean, it's fantastic. But it's pure fantasy. Yeah, no, and... You know, I get why cheating on those kind of period details is done in movies and TV. Because, you know, the modern audience wants, or or modern writers, you know, we want to make Elizabeth seem free-spirited or, you know, modern in some way, a woman who can sit there in armor and who can gallop. But I think in some way it does women of the time a massive disservice because what's really amazing to me is that given all these absurd restrictions, needless discomforts, you know, twisting around, hanging on for dear life, and all these just boulders thrown in their way, these women were able to achieve what they were able to achieve, that they were able to ride and, you know, deliver this speech, and in a way gives them weirdly more credit if we show how how constrained they were, how hard it was. So I agree, and I've read many people who feel like 
the scene that went too far was actually not in Elizabeth, but in the Spanish princess. When they gave Catherine of Aragon the pregnant armor when mm-hmm. she went to lead. And it is amazing that while Henry was gone, Catherine of Aragon went to lead an army. And and it is amazing that she was pregnant. But the idea that she... <laughs> that, they, that they would give her pregnancy armor. <laughs> she was lucky not to have to wear her stays. Well, they wouldn't be wearing stays. But she was lucky not to have to wear a stomacher. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. And actually... I think it would tell us a lot more about Elizabeth's personality and perseverance, to your point. Her real strength as a 16th century woman would be shown if we could see the envy and frustration in her eyes when Sir Robert dashes off, pelting along at a gallop, and she has to, like, trot and twist it, and she's lengths behind him, and she's full of frustration. You know, and she's trying not to slip off her horse because of her unnaturally twisted body and only having one stirrup. You know, I think that's so much more powerful rather than just acting like it was just like now. I agree. And in a weird way, it's, it's kind of complex in a way, but it, it almost makes it seem when you see Elizabeth galloping along in her side saddle, you sort of it gives us the feeling that why didn't more women do, quote, do more? Because if they could, if Elizabeth could gallop along in her side saddle, why weren't other women galloping along? So it doesn't give us the truth of just how hard it was to do any of these things for women. And sometimes it was just too hard, you know. You know, then on the other hand, I think writers and directors, and they're afraid that if they don't show Elizabeth galloping along, they're going to be making some comment about how she couldn't keep up with Sir Robert Dudley. But she couldn't keep up with Sir Robert Dudley because of the constraints that the male society was putting on the way she rode a horse, not because her spirit wasn't as strong as his, you know, and that's a hard thing to get across in an image. Uh, Women were permitted, however, to do archery in the 16th century. And I guess that's because, you know, you stood up very straight. Right. The posture was very beautiful. Long bows are actually very beautiful. So there was a good visual. So right. maybe it, really, it looked, yeah, it, it looked graceful. Graceful, yeah. But apparently women also played golf in the 16th century. I mean, well, Mary Queen of Scots did. Who knows if, it, if other women were allowed to. But she grew up in the French court under the supervision of her future mother-in-law, good old Catherine de' Medici. Mary played a lot of a forerunner of golf and croquet, and it was called Paul Mall. Paul Mall was played with a mallet, not a club like in golf, and the ball was knocked through wickets. So to me, it sounds a little more like cricket. I read that it was the Scottish who first thought of hitting the ball into a hole. And the lore is that when Mary went to Scotland, she played golf in place of Paul Mall, and that she played at St. Andrews, which is, you know, probably the most famous golf course in the world. But I'm really not sure that meant other women played regularly. And, you know, again, it's, it's, it's good to be queen. Sure, she was able to do things other women couldn't. And like Elizabeth... That didn't necessarily mean, unfortunately, that she brought other women to play along with her. And the links at St. Andrews have been played on since the 15th century. It's crazy, isn't it? It's incredible. By the late 19th century, women were allowed to play on the course, but they were prohibited from entering the clubhouse at St. Andrews until... Don't, Don't tell me. Don't tell me. It's even worse than you think. Women were not allowed in the clubhouse at St. Andrew's Golf Course until 2014. Oh, my God. 
That's unbelievable. Uh, well, I mean, some people have claimed that Mary didn't really play. I don't know why that's important. But that the rumor that she was golfing a few days before her husband, Lauren Darnley, was killed was made up and used by her enemies to show her guilt in his murder. But why would that smear her and make her look guilty? I don't know. I mean, maybe the implication was that any woman indecent enough to play golf was clearly capable of murder. I mean, that you know, like, I mean, that clearly that's the implication, right? The thing is, women in this period, and for most periods, but in this period, they're very confined by society. And we see that in this chapter. Constance is swinging around a racket for a game she's not allowed to play. Yeah. And she's trapped by Sir Charles Paget's plan for their marriage. And Philomena understands that. And now, of course, if a friend came to get advice about this situation, we'd say, well, you could break it off with Charles and you could just find someone else. Or not. You could decide no, to No, I mean, single. absolutely or not. You could live happily single. But in this period, for a woman of Constance's class, it's almost impossible to do that. One, the legal rights of for women of this period, they're extremely limited. That's true. And she could possibly get out of her betrothal by reporting Charles to the religious authorities. But that's ugly. I just, it, she would not do that. And taking orders abroad and returning to England, it was, of course, extremely illegal. Right. Traitorous. Right. But, she, but Constance isn't going to give up Charles like that. You know, she's a Catholic herself, and she would never betray him. And as she says to Philomena, she feels kind of guilty that she doesn't want to be a nun. I mean, she's been brought up to consider that a high calling. Even if she herself doesn't want it, she feels like she should want it. And if she does not go with Charles and she does not turn him in, Constance will be in a terrible situation. Mm -hmm. We've talked about pre-contracts in other episodes and how a previous pre-contract could be used to prevent or annul a subsequent marriage with someone else. So Constance is betrothed to Charles, and that pre-contract will now stand in her way if it comes out. Right, and, and Constance has to marry. It's so important to remember that in this time period, because it was very hard for women to make their own money, they had to rely on a man for their upkeep. Again, not because they were weak or they wouldn't stand against authority, but because the laws of the time were so pitted against any other possibility. So women had to rely first on their fathers and then on their husbands. Of yeah. course there are exceptions. Uh, sure. And you can find women in this period who managed to make it on their own. But it was extremely rare. And their circumstances of being able to achieve that were extremely rare, too. Yes, yeah. and sometimes I think we love to hear these stories about the woman who was in the Tile Makers Guild or the woman who was in even the Bricklayers Guild. And those women did one in a hundred years. Mm -hmm. They did exist. And they were extraordinary. But for us to only focus on those stories... Again, it's it's very distorting. For but other also, women. it's very possible that in those limited situations, they were taught that trade because maybe their husbands broke their leg, yes. and they taught their wife the trade, yes. and then their wife was able to take it on. But it wasn't the norm in any way, shape, or form. It would have been an extraordinary circumstance that they would even learn a trade like that. Yes, and of course, women were banned from entering 
the kind of what we would think of now as professional trades, law, medicine, teaching, the clergy. And even though they were not officially banned, they did not have to officially ban them. Because there were so few women who who would even get to the point where they could join a guild. Yes. Yeah. Of course, women could be servants. And as we've said, possibly one woman could bake pastries in... Henry Henry VIII's. Oh, the confectioner, Lucy yes. Cornwallis. Yeah, yeah. One, one woman, woman of 200 <laughs> men in the kitchen could do that. And they could sometimes work as dressmakers or milliners. Sometimes they could be dyers or embroiderers or midwives. They midwives. could be midwives. Yes. Yeah. Which is why I think you see in so many Tudor novels, they're always a midwife or sometimes a, some sort of witchy. Well, a midwife, I mean, doctors didn't assist people at birth. So a midwife was a pretty secure situation for a woman. It wasn't a job that most men went into. So midwife is a good, good example. But still, it's not many. No. Some women did run their own businesses. And a woman might inherit a business as Philomena does. And Philomena's mother inherited her business from her husband. Yes. She didn't start that business on her own. She inherited it from her husband, and then Philomena inherited it from her mother because Philomena doesn't have a brother. I think a lot of Tudor files know widows were relatively independent women as well because they kind of inherited the rights of their dead husband so they could own property. But even then, businesses and estates went to the eldest son if there was one. Right. It skipped the woman. So in legal terms, from the Norman conquest all the way through the 19th century, a woman was either a femme sole, a single woman, or a femme covert, a woman covered by her husband. That's what it literally means. Yes, and we could say not so much covered as subsumed. So coverture was the legal doctrine where a man and a woman become one person, and that one person is the husband. The wife had no independent rights at all, no rights to her children, no rights to property, no rights to an education, to her body, to her own money, even if she worked herself. Any wages she earned were her husband's by law. Through the 19th century, and in some places up until the 20th century, and I'm assuming in some countries, it's still that way. I I don't want to say it isn't, because I don't know for a fact. So, And if a woman left her husband, whoever took her in had the legal obligation to return her because she was her husband's property. And when you get that invite addressed to Mr. and Mrs. first name and last name, that's a holdout from coverture. Right. I mean, you... Mr. Ver- and Mrs. John Doe. <laughs> yes. And, you know, you don't get those It's because John Doe anymore. is still... Sometimes you do, though, and it's always a little surprising when you get yes. it. And it's like the person thinks they're being fancy. Yeah. No. Alert. <laughs> and as a wife, your own name, even your first name, has been subsumed into your husband. Right. You don't, you're, you're Mr. and Mrs. John Doe. You're not Mr. and Mrs. Ellen and John Doe. Yes. It's, it's for hundreds of years, all the money, everything was his. And some protective fathers did try to make provisions for their daughters to retain an inheritance. The problem was that once the couple was actually married, 
Those provisions were extremely hard to retain because in the eyes of the law, there was no separation between the husband and the wife. So the wife couldn't have anything separate. In the eyes of the law, the wife was now part of her, of her husband. She was basically a non-person. She was him. And she could have no legal rights to anything separate from his. So even if these provisions were made, once people got married, the, the men would sue and the, the court would agree with the man saying it was his property because he and his wife were one. A femme soul could own property and she could keep her wages. So it seems surprising that more women did not remain single. But I think the opportunities to form your own life were so limited and it it has to have been very lonely in a society that was so focused on family and your your role as a mother was a primary way that you had status in this society. And so I think it was both just the way society made you feel as well as the economics that it was very tough to be alone. Yeah, and I think it was also put you in a situation where you were kind of mistrusted a little bit. A single woman in this society who didn't live with her parents or didn't live with someone else who lived on her own, I think it was a very perilous thing. I think you were at risk of being thought, you know, maybe a witch or something not quite right, that there was something not quite right with you if you wanted to live on your own. And, you know, it's it, it was... A tough. It was very perilous to be a woman alone in the 16th century. And Constance, you know, has no money of her own to support herself with. Her father would have left a dowry for her in his will, but that would go to her husband and it wouldn't go, if she doesn't get married, it's not going to go to anybody. So she's not going to get that if she doesn't marry, ma- marry Charles. And either, you know, a brother or a male cousin would inherit Stoner House and all the income from the land. So it's not like anything is going to come to her independently. No. And being unmarried, she could return to Stoner House, which she loves Stoner House. Right. And she can imagine it, but she could actually never live there. And if she went there as an unmarried woman, she would have to live off the charity of whoever inherited it and be a spinster. And in Constance's social class, you know, she would be a failure. And she would be a liability because her responsibility to her family, why they educated her, why they sent her to court, why they paid for her to have dancing lessons, why they did all these things was that so she could make a good marriage and take herself off their hands. Because somebody's going to have to be responsible for her. Constance has been educated to be the spouse of a gentleman. And she's been taught to read and write so she can run a large household. Which was a pretty big job. And it's one that Constance would hope would come with her marriage to Charles Paget, but you were in charge of many people. Yeah. And in fact, there's records where women were looking at the accounting. It's not that they thought women were all stupid. No. In fact, women often had a lot of financial ideas about things. Mildred Cecil, as we've said before, she was well-educated. She, she actually ran charities for women who were um, pregnant. And so it's not as if they didn't think that women were intellectually able they just there wasn't our concept that women should be able to live alone and make their own decisions so all these things the education the 
you know, the sophistication, the languages, the learning, it all was supposed to go to the service of being a better helpmate to your son or your husband, not to yourself. There was no concept of that at all. No, it's not to better yourself. And, and, you know, and actually in terms of education, I think we've talked about this before too, this, the, the tutors were kind of a high point for female education. So, I mean, it actually got, education actually got worse for women before it got better. Yes, under James, it got much worse. And it, so whatever Constance hoped would come of her marriage to Charles Paget, she's now in kind of an impossible situation Mm -hmm. that even Philomena can't see a way out of. No, I mean, honestly, at this point, Constance really just has to hope that Charles will change his mind and have a regular marriage and, you know, and she can go and run his household for him. But in the meantime, she'll continue to search for the relic. Right. Because at least it gives her a focus. Mm -hmm. Some hope. Join us next time when Constance goes to Cecil House to ask Rutland to introduce her to George Wyatt. (laughs) And Rutland gets the very, very wrong impression. <laughs> oh, that Rutland. Leave us a comment on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. We have a huge community there and we just love hearing from you. And there's always interesting articles and discussions. So join us next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor Mind Talk. Mind-y.